I think that it's important to look at things in a much more holistic way. You don't want to be reductionistic and say, I can only change physical things with physical things. We can change physical things with, with our minds. As the COVID-19 pandemic enters its third year, we are still working to fully understand its impacts, from lost lives and livelihoods, to years of learning lost in schools, to a complete rewiring of how we think about our interactions with others. And during that time, we've seen the emergence of a new crisis in mental health, with record rates of depression, anxiety, and stress. How will we recover from all of this? How will we build back resilience? I'd advocate strongly that we need to do it together. We are stronger in numbers. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with mental health leaders about what's driving this crisis, how to meet the overwhelming need among millions who don't have access to care, and what local innovators here in Boston are doing to drive solutions. Today, we're joined by one of the kindest, nicest people I've ever worked with, Dr. Maurizio Fava, Chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Fava and I talk about the science of mental health and the way in which our experiences over the past two years have created a pandemic within a pandemic. Maurizio, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So to kick off, can you tell everyone a little bit about you and how you ended up at MGH running the Department of Psychiatry? Okay, well, I'm originally from a small town in Italy uh, called Valdagno. I grew up there and then I moved to a university town called Padova where I went to medical school. And then I had an older brother who had de declared that he was going to be a psychiatrist when he was in high school. So the last thing I wanted to do was to do what my brother was going to do. So I avoided psychiatry in medical school. So I went on to train in endocrinology. But as I was practicing endocrinology, my boss would say, Maurizio, what are you doing? You're talking to the patients too much. You're trying to understand how thyroid disease is affecting them. You're not a psychiatrist, you're an endocrinologist. And as he was saying that, I came to the conclusion that even though I was trying to avoid being a psychiatrist, I was better off actually pursuing that. So I, I came here, I trained in psychiatry at Mass General, and I fell in love with the incredible environment, uh, with the colleagues, the hospital, and, and the opportunities that I've had. And so people sometimes don't realize how fortunate or how lucky we are to be here in Boston with the incredible brain power that we have and the ecosystem with uh, over a thousand biotech companies. You know, it's, it's an incredible place. So that was 37 years ago when I came to Boston to train and I have never left. It's really incredible what you point out, something that we take for granted all the time, that literally within a couple miles are some of the best hospitals in the world, some of the brightest doctors and nurses and practitioners in the world. And it just feels normal to us, but it's really an incredible place to be. You know, I'm taken by something that you said, though, when you were training as an endocrinologist, you were talking to people about how that made them feel. And when you started 
out as a doctor and training as a doctor, do you think we looked at medicine differently? It feels like now we're beginning to understand the connections between mind and body and that we really are one functioning being and you can't separate the two completely. Was that the way that we looked at medicine when you were beginning your training as a doctor? No, I would say that unfortunately, in many cases in medicine, we kind of neglected the impact of what I would call physical illnesses on the mind and on the brain of patients. You know, a significant proportion of patients with thyroid disease will experience depression. Uh, same thing is true for those with Cushing's disease and other endocrine condition or diabetes. And yet, for many years, we would not even screen for depression in those populations, even though these conditions may actually cause depression in the patients who suffer from them. That's so interesting. And it kind of feeds right into what we're talking about today. You wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe where you talked about the fact that we are living through a pandemic within a pandemic as mental health disease is on the rise. And does that correlate to some degree with so many people suffering from COVID and then so many others, even if they didn't suffer from COVID, they suffered from loneliness, separation, death of family and friends. How do you think about all of these things and, and what do you actually see playing out at MGH? Well, there's no question that we've seen a tremendous rise in depression and anxiety in the general population. A survey that was conducted by Dr. Roy Perlis from Mass General and his colleagues showed a tripling of anxiety and depression in the general population in their survey. It was already high to begin with. So people are often asking me, what do you say, how come that I never experienced depression before, but now I am depressed. Why is that? Stress is a risk factor for mental health conditions, whether it's anxiety or depression. And the levels of stress that we experienced during this pandemic have been extraordinarily high, whether because we lost a job, whether because we lost a relationship, because we lost a loved one to the illness. This has been an extraordinarily stressful time for everyone. And in that context, those who may be vulnerable to depression or anxiety may develop these conditions and therefore uh, will lead to the problem that we were not prepared as a country to the pandemic within the pandemic. We didn't have enough uh, inpatient beds for psychiatric admissions. We have not trained enough mental health specialists. The treatment of depression and anxiety is not simply to build another ventilator. You don't have machines that can just uh, do that. Right. It's not like a broken leg you can't put it in a cast and then it heals. You, you need an active treatment, an engagement, a relationship with a doctor or a treater or, uh, or a therapist. If you suddenly see a tripling of anxiety and depression, where do you find the therapist? Where do you find the doctors? That, to me, is why we see what we see. Yeah, because, I mean, talk to me about that, because there's a dearth of professionals who are trained to treat folks who have mental health needs. I can imagine the workforce 
as well in hospitals is probably also suffering. They experienced the same things as the general public did. What do you think the government should be doing right now? One, to kind of immediately react to this pandemic within a pandemic, but also to prepare us, because I, I would imagine this has a long tail. You know, unfortunately, you're very likely to be right in the sense that this pandemic, within the pandemic, may not end when the COVID pandemic ends. There may be a long tail. Yeah, there are a number of things that we should do. One is, you know, eliminate barriers to practice. You know, right now, for example, there are arbitrary barriers that are geographic. If you live in uh, Vermont or in Maine, a doctor in Massachusetts cannot treat you because you need to have a license in that state. Psychiatry has clearly shown, and we've shown it in our hospital, the ability to pivot and, and go right for telepsychiatry with great efficiency, with a, a Zoom call. We can provide a lot of treatment. So why should we limit, in the context of a paucity of treaters, why should we limit the practice and create barriers? So if you're, if you're li licensed to practice in Massachusetts, you can't treat someone in Vermont. Correct, correct. And, and so that's a regulatory obstacle that we should remove. You should be able to have reciprocity across states. The other thing that we can do is eliminate barriers to reimbursement for trainees. So, you know, in a place like Boston, we have hundreds of trainees and many insurance companies don't reimburse or don't allow trainees to treat patients. That's withholding treatment, right, which could be possible with no reason because many of those trainees are quite experienced and they could make a difference. And then there has to be greater investments. On average, across the country, the same procedure performed by a psychiatrist gets reimbursed at 60 cents on the dollar compared to other specialists, including primary care. So what that means is that you are paying psychiatrists and psychologists less, which means that you create financial disincentives for hospitals to provide psychiatric care because their reimbursements are so low. And that means that, you know, you have fewer trainees because the hospitals and the universities cannot afford to train them. So it's all connected. We would need to have a parity in reimbursement that allows better reimbursements for psychiatric care, which then leads to greater investments in this field because people are no longer hampered by these uh, lower reimbursements. So th these are some of the things that we could, if we wanted to fix the problem, that we should do. You and I were talking at one point, and you were talking about the emergency room and emergency rooms across the city and how so many more people are entering right now because of mental health needs. In particular, we're also seeing a huge rise in children and adolescents, college students suffering. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen since 2020? 
Oh, no question. That the same rise that we've seen in adults, we've seen it in kids. And we're even more unprepared to help them because we have fewer child psychologists, fewer child psychiatrists, fewer child therapists. I would say that every day I get a phone call from someone that says, you know, my kid needs to be seen. I can't find anybody who can see my kid. This is a problem that is tremendous. So we clearly have a broader problem, but it's even more exacerbated in kids. And, you know, it's interesting because I was listening to a counselor from a local high school, and he, he does consulting work for schools across the country. And he said one of the things that's being reported in addition to higher levels of stress and anxiety and depression and the results of those in kids is that there also seems to have been some sort of stunting in development and that teachers are observing ninth graders behaving like eighth graders, not having the same social development that would have happened, I'm sure, because we were all isolated. I would imagine that has got to be one more complicating factor for students and teachers as they go back into school, where no one's really equipped with the right set of skills for for handling that, which must just exacerbate everything else. Yeah, no, it's a great point, uh, Jill. And, you know, if you think about it, Certainly, when I look back at my uh, elementary, middle school, and high school experience, I learned a lot from the teachers, but also I learned a lot from my peers, from the uh, the other students, from spending time with them and discussing which Roman emperor we favored. And all those discussions have been hampered. It's not the same thing as texting or communicating, uh, you know, virtually be in the same class and maybe talking in between classes made a great difference. And so I'm not surprised that people feel like the kids are not progressing in the same way. I, I would struggle too because the it's the whole experience that allows us to grow. It's being in a school with other kids and we've seen what the pandemic has done to schooling. Yeah, I I guess, you know, one of the uh, quotes from one of the papers you wrote said there were 47,000 more mental health visits to ERs at the 38 children's hospitals around the country in the first quarter of 2021, which is 40% higher than what happened in 2020. And so obviously COVID and all of the different aspects of that have exacerbated all of this I'm curious, did the same thing happen? Do we know, were we paying attention to this during the Spanish flu? Well, (laughs) you have to look at what mental health was viewed in those years. I, I was not around at that time to tell, but I suspect that there was tremendous stigma around mental health or or depression or anxiety. It's hard to imagine, given how many people lost loved ones because of the Spanish flu, that there wouldn't be depression and anxiety and fear of dying and all that. But again, I don't think that in those years there was the same level of recognition and the level of comfort. I think we're grateful to all those who have come forward 
talking about their depression and their struggles with mental health. It's so important to see, for example, young athletes describing their struggles and because they're destigmatizing. They're helping everybody feel like, oh, okay, if he or she has that, I'm allowed to have that too. I don't think that there was anybody during the Spanish flu that would go to a newspaper and say, look, I'm a successful person, but I suffer from depression or anxiety. I think people would not yeah, talk about it. Yeah, it makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about what actually happens in our bodies and our brains? What biologically changes to cause depression or anxiety or any of these things? Is the underlying mechanism generally stress and then that impacts us in some way? Or, or what, what actually is happening to us that makes us start to feel sad or depressed or anxious? You know, stress is a risk factor. So it's not necessarily what ultimately causes this. We assume that we what we see is a kind of a gene-environment interaction where people with genetic predisposition or without genetic predispositions interacting with the environment and then go on to develop these conditions. And I think that when we talk about anxiety or depression, these are such heterogeneous con- conditions. So the biology, what really goes on in the brain, has not been fully understood. It still remains poorly characterized, even though we have studied extensively brain functioning with neuroimaging and with a number of tools that we have in terms of biomarkers. At the end of the day, we still don't quite know, but what we know is that when someone develops, let's say it is a depression, clinical depression, in some cases it may spontaneously remit, but in many cases you need to have treatment to really get better. And seeking treatment is critical. That's the first step. But then accessing treatment is also critical. And that's where we're struggling right now, access to treatment. So meaning people are trying to get treated and they're waiting in a line somewhere. Correct. Talk a little bit about resilience. My understanding is resilience is kind of the key to this, that if you're hit with a trauma and you're in a state of strong resilience, you can get through that trauma without it impairing you significantly. How do you know how resilient you are? If you're in a resilient state, how do you help folks who are less resilient right now and who need to be cared for? And how do you build back resiliency? Well, I think that you're alluding to something that is very important and protective. The more resilient you are, the more protected you are against stress or trauma. And so at times like this, building resilience is very important. We at Mass General have developed a number of interventions that build resilience. And in fact, we have deployed them for healthcare workers, showing very good effects with these virtual programs of resilience uh, building interventions. There's no question, in my mind, it's a little bit like, if you think about it, is training, right? Uh, 
if you are trained to, you know, exercise, if you are forced to run, to escape through running, you're much more likely to make it when you're trained, when you have that kind of physical resilience that allows you, whereas those who don't practice, don't exercise, they're, they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle. They're going to kind of at a certain point say, I can't run anymore and to stop or they can't make it to where they need to go. So I think that it's the same issue that is we need to train ourselves to be resilient. We need to learn the skills. We need to, if we have them, we need to make them stronger because you never know when you're going to need them. But this is a time when we need those skills. So Dr. Vavit, is this where we get to the part though that feels kind of woo-woo to some people because those skill building exercises are things like exercise, meditation, eating well. Talk a little bit about how you build back resiliency, gratitude. Because I think for some people it feels, I don't know, maybe too easy or too hard, but we know what sprints do for the body when you're training to play soccer. What's the equivalent in terms of building back resiliency in your mind? And- I, I think that all the things you mentioned are critical. So if you think about it, a very important study by Madhuka Trivedi and colleagues showed a dose-response curve of exercise for the treatment of depression. The more you exercise, the less depressed you are, and so when people say, oh, you know, all these things are, they're kind of, they're not real scientific interventions. That's not, tr- not true at all. People are discovering effects of uh, exercise on neurogenesis, on the formation of new brain cells in the brain. All these things have uh, biological effects, but the difference is that they're not, produced by a pill, by a treatment, or by a transcranial magnetic stimulation. They're produced by things that are accessible. Exercise, it's accessible to most people. Healthy nutrition, you know, is accessible to most people. Meditation, in theory, you know, most people can do it. People will, you know, will look at those and say, how can they possibly change my brain? And they do. They do. I think that it's important to look at things in a much more holistic way. You don't want to be reductionistic and say, I can only change physical things with physical things. We can change physical things with, with our minds. You know a lot about this. And, and so maybe this is the right time to talk about your research. You've published tons of research on depression. You've also published research on placebo. But talk first about your research on depression and what have we learned from you about depression through your work? Well, I think that I've learned from studying depression is that, A, that it's very heterogeneous, that not necessarily my depression is your depression. They may look very different. One may be a depression where you lose weight, you can't sleep. Another person can be depressed and overeat and oversleep. So 
great differences in how depression manifests itself. We also have learned that some of the different, uh, we call them subtypes, may respond differently to treatments. Maybe tougher to treat in some cases or easier to treat in others. We've also learned that by studying depression, the standard antidepressant treatments have modest effects. That at the end of the day, if you just take an antidepressant, your success rate is very modest. It's very important not to give up and say, well, we tried a medicine that, you know, it's not great, that's it, we'll, we'll call it a quiz. There are many treatment opportunities that we should consider. And we at Mass General have studied many of them and shown their efficacy. So it's important to think about next step strategies, which can go from cognitive behavioral therapy to we just completed a terrific study by Dr. Marinier on uh, heated yoga, showing benefits. And Dr. David Michelon has shown the benefit of omega-3 fatty acids. And, and so very important to know about next steps and also to know for whom next step would be best. Right. Uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I would imagine, in part, it's what the individual feels they might respond to best which is a little bit maybe what your placebo work tells us. Can you talk a little bit about the studies that you've been a part of on placebo? Because I find it fascinating that we can give someone nothing, even tell them it's nothing, and they improve. In my mind, the term placebo has a negative connotation, right? In the sense that people assume that placebo is no treatment. A placebo is a form of treatment. It is a, you can argue it's a mind-body intervention because it leverages expectations, it leverages one's own kind of resilience. It creates a sense of empowerment and confidence. You know, our studies have shown that placebo responses vary greatly from population to population, and very also as a function of the expectations. So let me give you an example. A study by Dr. George Papacostas and I a few years ago, it was a meta-analysis, so we looked at many different trials of antidepressants, and we found that if you have a 50-50 chance of placebo, So you participate in a trial and you're told that you have a 50-50 chance of placebo. Your placebo response will be lower than the placebo response if you're told that your chances of placebo is only 33 or 25%. So the moment you have greater confidence that you're going to get the real thing, the active treatment, your placebo response will go higher. And the placebo response, meaning that your body is reacting. Yeah, your body, your mind is reacting to the fact that your expectations are greater. You now think that you're more likely to get something active, and that alone will increase your response to placebo. 
Actually, I'm curious also, because we're such social beings, does that have any effect if, the, if there are people, maybe you haven't studied this yet, but if there are people around you who are helping you carry through the treatments, does that also have beneficial effects? I, I think it's been inadequately studied. We often focus on the individual as if the individual lived in an isolated state. But what happens if you prescribe something to a patient, the patient goes home, and the family says, why are you taking that? Well, uh, that's really bad. That's, you shouldn't be taking it. And nobody gets better on that medicine. You know, or, Will that modify your response? There's an old study from Lino Covey many, many years ago that showed that in some ways, if people believed in the treatment, they got better more robustly. And what we believe about treatments is shaped not just by our own beliefs, but the environment we're surrounded. If you're in a family that believes in meditation, if your parents are meditators, and you go home and you say, you know, I think I need to do some meditation to help my anxiety, they'll say, that's great, that's fantastic. You go home and, you know, and uh, your parents think the meditation is kind of voodoo. They may change your expectations and they may have an influence on how you view the treatment. Right. Well, it, it does, I mean, it does speak to how important things like love and compassion and empathy are in helping us stay well and helping us get better. No question, no question that these are important factors to help with our resilience. And, but at the same time, despite all these positive factors, sometimes people will get sick anyway. We shouldn't look at that as where well, we're failing them because we're not providing adequate love and support. Those things help. But at the end of the day, it's it's a combination of genetics, stress, trauma, all kinds of things that lead to illness. So it sounds like we have some significant work ahead of us to help the country heal. One, heal from COVID, and two, heal from the mental health ramifications of COVID, which were already kind of on the rise before COVID hit. If you were kind of king for a day and looking at our country or our world as a whole, what are the steps that you think each of us individually and then comprehensively should be taking to just help society heal? Well, it's a great question. We need to be nice to ourselves. Put the oxygen mask on yourself first. It's very hard to help others if you're not helping yourself. So basic things like nutrition, adequate sleep, stress reduction. We want to keep an eye on our allostatic load, which is the the amount of stress that we can handle. You know, sometimes people say, oh, I I thrive under stress. Yes, but you want to make sure that you don't reach a threshold of which you start 
losing the ability to handle it and to be resilient. So all those things are very, very important. Once we we're doing that, I think that supporting others is very, very important. Whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, being there for each other has a positive effect on us. That is, we feel better by helping others, and it's a very important aspect in my mind that if we could encourage everyone to be nice to themselves and to others, it could make a big difference. And it's really important, I think, if you're noticing that someone looks like they're unwell, it's really important to seek out help. It's really important to be guided by professionals who understand it and with the right information. There's a lot that we can do to help ourselves heal. Absolutely. Seeking help and not being afraid of looking for help is critical. Hopefully, with an effort from the government, from insurance companies, regulators, healthcare providers, will make a difference for all those who suffer. Right, absolutely. Maurizio, tell me one thing. What do you do each day to take care of yourself? Well, you know, I confess, I love to take walks. There's nothing, you know, that I find more relaxing. When I'm in Italy, I like to go to the Italian Riviera and walk on the beach and stop by and look at the uh, the shells and so forth. But here, I think wa- walking around the neighborhood is uh, is my relaxing uh, time. Yeah, me too, actually. That's, that's the thing that I think makes me the calmest also. Dr. Fava, thank you so much for spending time helping us understand this crisis and what we can all be doing about it, how to reach out and get help if you're suffering. We really appreciate all of the work that you do. And we're so lucky to have Mass General in our city and right around the corner. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Maurizio Fava, Chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Fava has studied mental health and depression for many years, and his observations and research are critical to understanding and addressing this current mental health pandemic. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.